Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 17 of Logicast, the AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today, as always, by my colleague, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? I'm getting disappointed with the as always. I feel like I'm part of the furniture now. Would you like to skip a week so that uh, I can welcome <laughs> you back? Would that, would that feel better for you? If, uh... I think you should skip a week. Well, yeah, you know, I can leave this in your capable hands if you like. That's uh, I'd be more than happy to have a week off, John. Uh, and uh, we're also joined today uh, by another very special guest, uh, fellow AWS community builder, Matthew Wilson. How are you doing, Matthew? Doing good, yeah. Essentially described as very special as well. It makes me feel more important than John, more valued than John, should I say. Definitely more important than John. He's always like, he's, part, he's part of the furniture, as he's, as he's pointed out. Tell us a bit about yourself, Matthew. Where, what do you do for a living? Obviously, you're an AWS community builder, so I hope you know a bit about AWS. Yeah, well, I think I'm thinking of some stuff. Um, I'm a principal engineer at a company in Belfast called Instill. And um, we're a services company. We just build products for our customers. And as part of that, then we get to you know do a lot of stuff with AWS and build cool things in the cloud for the people that come and give us money. Nice. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. But that's not what the podcast is about. We're just here to share information. Uh, no, we're not here to uh, to monetize or, or uh, generate money from the podcast. But uh, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not getting paid. I thought I was getting paid for this. Only in swag. Only in swag. So uh, <laughs> t-shirts and stickers. Uh, yeah. If you want to sell them on eBay, then uh, that's up to you. So <laughs> not sure what you'd actually get for them. So. Uh... So we just come off the back of another three-day weekend, certainly here uh, in the UK anyway. We've had uh, the coronation of our new king, uh, Charles. Uh, I know you've perhaps got a slightly different opinion on that, Matthew, though, given where, uh, given where you're based. Yeah, there's mixed, mixed viewpoints about Charles in, in Northern Ireland, but um, it was a good good coronation anyway, quite, quite the event. Yeah, well, it was a big event over here, but there's certainly mixed, uh, mixed opinions in the UK about it as well. Um, obviously... Uh, some guys were arrested for having luggage straps in the boot of their car. Turns out those luggage straps weren't actually going to be used to strap them to any public monuments, but there we go. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're not here to talk about the uh, coronation. As you know, if you've uh, listened to the podcast before, uh, every week I collate a, an AWS Roundup newsletter um, sharing news um, all about what's new in AWS, technical how-to tips and business updates about AWS. And then every week, John and I select a subset of those articles that we want to talk about in a little bit more detail on the podcast. So we've got another selection of those articles to chat to you about this week. The first of which um, is about a new feature uh, for Athena. Uh, AWS has introduced Athena provisioned capacity. So what can you tell us about this, John? Right. Well, not everyone will have heard of Athena. They should have done because it's one of the better services out there for data querying. But we'll start with that. So Athena is AWS's service for querying flat files, basically, in the form of SQL. It can do other things as well, but primarily what I tend to use it for is things like um, CloudWatch, uh, Cloud CloudFront logs, ALB logs, whatever, load them into a table and then query them with SQL. Right. So we've got a customer that says, ah, oh, I'm being DDoSed. Okay, you can look at where the requests are coming from with Athena kind of after the, after the fact. Cool. Up till now, it's been an on-demand payment because you just kind of load the data in, run your queries, you pay whatever it is it costs. I don't actually know what it is off the top of my head, but it's it's incredibly cheap to the point where you don't even really need to ask permission for running it because no one's going to see it on a bill. Like, it's that cheap. Pence. 
What this is doing is this is doing the provision capacity, as the name kind of implies, thing that AWS have done with a number of their other serverless solutions, other serverless products. So DynamoDB being the obvious comparator here, that has paper request and provision capacity. This is kind of doing the same thing. What it's doing is you are just pre-allocating some um, capacity units, basically. The only annoying thing I have with this is this is absolutely going to come up on an exam where you have to calculate the new capacity unit, the new data processing unit. You're going to have to have to work that out in a test. So thanks. Great. Love that. Yeah, that was my first takeaway as well. Is it just another kind of unit that I have to work out what this actually means in terms of dollars? And yeah, so this is another thing to try and remember. And another, seems like another thing that's another serverless product that's got a known serverless feature to it now as well. And another thing to consider in uh, cloud cost optimization projects, I guess, are you now procuring your Athena in the uh, most cost efficient way? It's an interesting point because the whole point of the cloud was it to pay for your usage kind of on demand. Okay, it is still technically on demand. It's moving from CapEx to OpEx and all that kind of business lingo. But if you're pre-selecting it, then you're doing pre-purchasing. Is What are you doing with that? What's kind of, I, I, I never understood it. Like, okay, yes, we can make some savings with cost optimization with savings plans and, and reserved instances and all that jazz. But largely, you're still paying as you use them. This, you're kind of going, okay, we're going to pre-provision 400 data processing units, whatever that's worth, and pay for that. Cool. It, I don't know. It just doesn't, it, I just don't, it doesn't sell for me. It doesn't sell. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with the first, um, <coughs> excuse me, with the first comment of just use Snowflake if you need this. I'm not sure I agree with that. But yeah, probably the, probably the first thing you should do is use on demand rather than provision. Whenever <laughs> 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 um, I, I, I see things, I guess, from AWS, it always says that they always say that it's in response to customer demand. And it just feel like, is there a, set, a subset of customers somewhere who are always wanting to use the managed services, but want to pay a set cost per month um, because they're afraid of a huge cloud or something. It's just, it's, it's really confusing. It's a good point. Um, I used to work for, this is public knowledge, I used to work for the London Stock Exchange. And what we found was in response to customer demand, it meant one of two things. Either a large customer demanded it, so what we tended to find was we asked for a service to appear in the London region and it was on the roadmap to appear in the next quarter. Magically, large customer, we've demanded it. Or is it lots of people have actually asked for this? I get the feeling it's the former, that there's one or two big customers that have asked for this. Yeah, I think so. I mean, at least, at least I have more options, you know, from AWS. It's always good to have options, but can't see, can't think of a use case where I'd want to use this, you know, immediately. Well, you've answered the question that I always ask of John there, Matthew. Mm. Do you think you're going to be using it? And uh, <laughs> the answer seems to be a resounding no uh, in our uh, particular um, scenario. But I would, but, say, uh, I would say what we're seeing is that the need for um, storing data in S3 and querying through Athena is, going to, is, is increasing. Um, through different projects, starting to see more and more like, you know, sort of big data style and have an S3 at the center of that. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's just going to be a growing trend. I so suppose think, that makes uh, sense because your S3 storage is so inc 
incredibly cheap. Yeah. So you think Athena usage is on the up, whether you pay for it on demand uh, or provision capacity? I think so, yeah. And I think um, we're sort of seeing with the AWS marketing as well, they're always talking now about how F3 is at the center of your, of your, your data management. And really, if you, do, if you choose to do that, then you have to use Athena to, to sort of get in, to be able to query that and parse that data. So. Or Snowflake, apparently. Uh, <laughs> or just use Snowflake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool. All right, let's move on to the uh, next article for this week, uh, which is um, a post from the AWS security blog about how to scan your AWS Lambda functions with Amazon Inspector. So I don't think we've, we've spoken a lot about Lambda on the uh, on the podcast before, but I don't think we've ever spoken about Amazon Inspector. So maybe, John, you could start with a quick definition about Inspector, and then we can talk it about how you can scan things. your... And now inspect your Lambda functions as well. But uh, <laughs> why might you want to do it. that? Yeah. So, again, this is one of those, it's not the only player in town, not the only kid on the block. Amazon Inspector is doing a subset of what you can find in other third-party tools. The one that I like to use is, is SonarCube, Sonar Cloud, that does security stuff as well. But what it's doing is it's doing code scanning of your deployed code. Okay, So up till now, it's been doing it on things like EC2 and, and other places like that. And now it's available for Lambda. Cool. Great. What's it actually doing? Well, there's two things it can do. It can do the standard scanning, which is just your packages and your dependencies and stuff in your layers and all that kind of thing, which is good. We want to know about CVEs, critical vulnerabilities, in things that we're depending on. Not always anything we can do about them, but we do like to know. Good. Do monitor those sorts of things anyway, and there's monitoring services for that that isn't this, so not sure. The other thing that's kind of cool, though, is code scanning. So it will scan your code that you wrote in the Lambda function. Like that, like that a lot. You can always get the people that are worried about, um, oh, this means Amazon has access to my code and they are they going to steal my code. They already have access to your code. Just no, just shush. They already have it. If they wanted it, they'd just take it. And they're not going to. They just There's no advantage to them pinching your piddly little training website or whatever. It's just, you know, not going to happen. What this is doing, though, is it's it's saying, you have done this. This is a bad thing. You should not do this. Go fix. You know, you've know, you got this package that you're depending on that you're vulnerable, or you've written your code in such a way that's not secure. Wonderful. And it does have a little bit of context with the Lambda environment, because one of the things I dislike about a Sonic Cube is it's constantly whinging about writing to slash temp. But slash temp is entirely secure in Lambdas, because it only exists for that function and can't be shared between them. So mm, forever muting that one, this presumably doesn't have that problem, which is which is nice. Always like these sorts of things, even if they are a little bit kind of limited, but I always like to see new things that AWS has sort of gone from the, the marketplace and said, people are doing this, and they've kind of made it an internal service. Always like to see that. Yeah, for us, we actually read this article, shared it with my colleagues, and we turned it on in our project to see what it would be like. So I think that's one of the benefits of you know using Lambda and serverless in general is that new features come out from AWS. We were able to turn this on without uh, making any code changes and immediately start to see like is this worth is this worth paying for essentially? So we it's you know it's like it's like the panda bot for your Lambda functions, but. The, the thing I really like to think about with security is that you got to take like the Swiss cheese approach 
for you to think about all these slices of Swiss cheese and there's holes going through. And this is just another layer in, in your security for application that you can turn on. And it's, but the pricing is really reasonable as well. So another welcome addition to the set of you know, automated security products that Amazon are, are sharing. So like Guard Duty, Amazon Inspector, Amazon Detective as well. So yeah, brilliant, really good us there. And just the thing we need to figure out now is how do we get notified whenever this detects a critical vulnerability in a Lambda function somewhere? How do we take action on that as a team to try and, try and plug that? security issue. So it's a challenge with a lot of these things, isn't it? Whether it's traditional monitoring or security monitoring or whatever, it's going to generate lots of logs, lots of alerts, but uh, they're useless unless you've figured out what to do with them. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, Query them with it. Athena. <laughs> yeah, or stick them in S3. And uh, yeah, <laughs> with provisioned capacity or on demand. <laughs> or Snowflake. Uh, <laughs> Whatever your preference, I suppose. Oh. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Anything else to say about that one, guys? Or should we skip along to the next article? Nothing from me. No. So uh, let's talk then about uh, something that's really on vogue at the moment in the news. Uh, it's uh, Chat GPT. Um, and this is an article about um, Chat AWS, how you can deploy AWS resources seamlessly with ChatGPT. And uh, as a, a founder and an owner of a um, AWS consulting and managed services business, I read this article uh, with uh, great interest because I thought maybe I can automate John and it's going to cost me <laughs> a lot less money. Uh, and maybe I can automate some of the other engineers in the business. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm just going to be able to ask a chatbot to do stuff for customers and uh, my margins are going to go through the roof. Uh, but uh, I'm sure it's not quite that simple. Uh, but uh, what, what do you think about this one, guys? AI is, is, as you say, it's in vogue at the minute. I don't see this as, as its current level replacing engineering skill, right? Because as you say, yes, you could automate some bits. I know we've been using ChatGPT for certain kind of internal bits, but I don't see this um, taking away from engineering talent, primarily because seamless, okay, an engineer's gone off and built this, for starters. And for second, it's only as good as what it knows how to do. And then for third, when it event inevitably falls over or you ask it to do something it doesn't know how to do, you're not going to be able to do that. You're a salesman. So you have to go and find an engineer. <laughs> yeah, like the hardest part of our jobs is taking customer requirements and converting that into a working application that works long term, and really the example here is that it, you know it's a random number generator. That you know it is a nice example of being able to build a, a plugin for a ChatGPT. But I think all these things just supplement, you know, engineers and enables them to just produce more code, um, you know, more code faster is what really what we want. I don't think it's ever going to replace us just yet. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. I'm a long way from retirement yet, so hopefully not. <laughs> well, anything that can speed up the workflow uh, is also going to get my vote. Um, but, of course, that was tongue-in-cheek. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to uh, replace you on the podcast, John, so uh, I can't see... Uh, <laughs> I can't see chat just, AWS. We just have a, a podcast that talks about you know what ChatGPT did today. You won't believe what it did today. <laughs> oh dear. Have you found I, do any... think it's, I do think it's an interesting thing, though. Not specifically this, but the use of engineers using things like AI to make them work faster, better, more efficiently, whatever. One of the things that we're working on internally at the minute 
for a customer is an enormous serverless project in a language that I've not really worked in before. And I had no idea how to write any unit tests for it. So chat, tell me how I can write unit tests in TypeScript using Jest. Here's a bunch of examples. Brilliant. I haven't had to go and learn how to Google that because that's the biggest barrier to knowledge in, in search engine world is you have to know the right things to ask to find the information, which I often jest is kind of half my job is knowing how to use Google. But honestly, it's not even a joke. What AI is doing through ChatGPT, Code Whisperer, AN, other plugin that helps you write code, it's kind of taking that not a way, but making it a lot easier. You just kind of have a conversation with something and it says, oh, yeah, you need to do this. Exactly. Anytime I'm Googling something and my wife might be looking over my shoulder, she's like, you use Google in a really weird way. Like, why do you not just type it? And I was like, no, but you're not using it right. You know, like, we've trained ourselves over many years to, to, you know, do that. But with ChatGPT, like you said, you can just get, you know, right. You don't have to scan like a blog post to find like a bit of information that you care about. It sort of just produce, you know, brings it to the front for you, but it's whether or not you can trust what it's actually telling you is true or not. I've seen it make quite a few mistakes with stuff that I've asked it, but um, one one good example I have is I was um, uh, uh, studying for some of the AWS certifications, and there's parts of it that didn't make sense to me, and I said, can you explain this further? And I was able to then break down you know, some stuff for me, which I thought was really, really useful. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we uh, we talked about an article uh, in a previous episode where um, I think it was Werner Vogels, wasn't it? Werner Vogels was talking about mm, ChatGPT and yeah, how it's not railing against it. It's not necessarily optimized to tell the truth. It's just optimized yeah. to give a convincing opinion. Um, so uh, maybe it's got better uses in sales actually than engineering, if that's the case. So uh, <laughs> we can uh, we could just use ChatGPT to answer all of our customers' uh, sales questions and objections, and uh, it can give a convincing opinion whether that happens to be the truth or not. Um, but uh, have you found any good uses for it yet, Matthew? Yourself? No, not really. No, um, so it's just <laughs> Yeah, beyond, uh, I think the only thing we're really using it, or the only thing I'm really using it for, is creating social posts. So it's quite good for that. Um, <clears throat> if you just ask it to give you a one-liner about uh, some an article that you're sharing. So, for example, we we share a lot of these articles on our LinkedIn company page, and the comments that go alongside them are generated by ChatGPT normally. So it's quite good for that. Um, but uh, you know, that's a fairly uh, low-risk environment where you know. Accuracy is not uh, necessarily yeah. uh, 100% required once you get into coding and things like that. And, uh, no, yeah, you say not. that, but we do have to occasionally go, no, that doesn't match. No, that doesn't fit. Or you've used the Batman and Robin example like six times already. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's an element of you, you, you do need to know. You, you, you do need to know the right prompts. So much like the Google example, you know, are you using Google in the right way? It's exactly the same with uh, with chatbots like ChatGPT. If you don't, uh, you know, if you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. Um, you know, you can ask the same question in different ways and get different answers and that kind of thing. So you have got to be careful about the, you know, how you ask and what you ask of a, of a chatbot for sure. So. Cool. Okay. Um, moving swiftly on um, to this next article um, is all about uh, cloud costs. It's entitled The Essential Need to Understand Cloud Costs in 2023. Now, I've referred to my vendor filter on a number of occasions in previous episodes in the podcast. I try to 
filter out third-party vendors that are not AWS. This one slipped through the filter. Um, so uh, it was a cheeky little uh, disguised vendor pitch in this blog post. Uh, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, cloud cost is something important that we ought to talk about. Um, and uh, perhaps there are some different angles on cloud costs in here that we haven't spoken about before. Um, but uh, I know you guys have got some opinions on this one. So far away, guys. I only picked this just to make you squirm and say that line. I do it every time. Ah, the vendor filter one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, hang on. That's a third party vendor. We're having that in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it is an interesting one. I mean, it is very obviously a vendor pitch because it talks very heavily about network connectivity and direct connect. They're not wrong in what they're saying because, I mean, if they were wrong, no one would buy the product. Right. But, what they're saying, to a great extent, is that egress fees are obscene. And to be honest, they are. They are. They're just obscene. Direct Connect doesn't solve for that in every case, though, is kind of what I'd say there, right? Because, yes, so the example I like to use of people that got this wrong is NASA, right? They moved petabytes of data up to AWS, and they were pulling it back down to their workstations kind of on the daily to do analysis against it. Imagine how much data they're moving around. And they got smacked by... a egress fee that was five times bigger than they're expecting or something like that because they did the maths wrong direct connect would solve for that it would because it's just kind of not necessary it's not really leaving the vpc as it were it's kind of just moving in and out a little bit but it's not going over the internet because that's kind of where the fees come in if you're running netflix it doesn't solve for that because you you're pushing to the internet so that customers can consume the content so it's not a, it's not a perfect solution. Yeah, I was actually really excited by the, the title of the blog post. I thought, oh yes, it's gonna be interesting. And then made me question the validity of this podcast. Because like I think I think as engineers, um the, the cost of the stuff that you're building is being made visible to you more and more, especially if you use more and more managed services. And that's something that I think engineers need to think about the price of this, you know, if it goes to production and then it's slowly descended into talking about on-prem and direct connect. And yeah, it made me very sad. Yeah. I mean, when I'm picking the articles um, for the newsletter, full disclosure, I don't read them all. I only read the ones <laughs> that we're going to talk about in the podcast. So when I was reading this yesterday, it's like, ah, damn. <laughs> so chat GPT to read it for you yeah. and tell you if it's a vendor pitch. Yeah, maybe I should. Yeah, maybe I should change my, really awesome. my work. Use chat GPT to write a, write a clickbaity uh, blog post that will slip through the vendor filter. Yeah, yeah. Well, these clickbaity titles. Obviously, I'm falling for the bait um, on uh, on a number of occasions. But uh, anything else on cloud costs, though, because uh, you know. It is essential to understand cloud costs in 2023. It was essential to understand them in 2022, 2021, and the years before that as well. But, uh, you know, as time goes on, it's becoming more and more essential, particularly as uh, cost of living increases, inflation at 10% or whatever it is now. So, uh, you know, anywhere we can uh, save money, uh, the better. So, um, yeah, um, what, what's your views on that, Matthew? Sort of, uh, you, know, you guys doing any kind of cloud cost optimization work or anything like that? Um Trying to get better and better at it as we as we move on. I think um, the only real way to do it is to measure. So to use the tools that I think the tooling that Amazon give you to, to look at your uh, your cost explorer and stuff. And 
and look at what's costing you the most money. We've been able to identify things in our projects and go, oh, if we, you know, we could, we could switch this up or change some settings here to make this a lot cheaper and then just see what difference would that make and then continue to iterate on it. So it's the same as any kind of optimization um, whenever you're building applications. It's just, it's just yet another thing we need to think about now is we need to optimize for performance, we need to optimize for cost and optimize for security. So it's another responsibility for engineers to take on, but um, something that I think is important to understand. Yeah, and I think it needs to be factored into the development process, as you say, not something yeah. to be thought about later. Uh, you know, no, once the uh, once the horse has bolted, um, I think that's the key thing. It's uh, it's well, not all about. You are spot on there. Um, I'm I'm stealing a line here from Corey Quinn, as I want to do. Your cloud architecture and your cloud cost strategy are the same thing. People don't really understand that. Not yet, but I think they're getting there. Yes, yeah. you can have best in service, but the, you know the best architecture in the world, but it's probably going to be the most expensive. Or you can have the cheapest architecture in the world. Uh, that's going to be entirely run by lambdas and held together with bits of string. So it's probably not going to be the most resilient. So you need something kind of in the middle. I think people are starting to get there. I think Matthew made a very good point as well that the um, the cloud native tooling is is getting much better now. The the tools that AWS give you, as long as you turn them on, because um, they're not on by default. Uh, but if you you know if you turn on the the various reporting functions that are available, there's some excellent data um, available directly from the vendors, which hasn't always been the case. I mean, there's a huge market for third party vendor tools, some of which we use as a, as a part of our managed service offering as a kind of belt and braces approach. Um, but uh, I think they're becoming less and less relevant as the um, as AWS in particular. Can't comment on the other cloud vendors. I'm sure they're doing something similar, but uh, you know, the AWS tools are getting better and better all the time um, in terms of what uh, what is available to you via the console. So uh, moving on to our last article for this week then, and uh, I know this is one that you've both uh, got some opinions on that you'd like to share as well. So uh, this one caught my eye that uh, Prime Video, um, which is obviously an Amazon product, has switched from serverless to EC2 and ECS to save costs. Now, normally we're preaching going in the opposite direction, moving more towards a kind of a cloud native vision as the way to save costs. But um, as this article articulates, that's not always the case. I guess it depends on your specific use case. So um, yeah, Prime Video have moved uh, all of their streaming application um, from serverless technology to more server-based technology. And it claims they've saved something like 90% reduction. Right, I'm going to jump uh, in, in because yeah. I, I can't not. That's not true. They Which have moved the entire streaming application that's not true they okay. have moved the video quality analysis piece ah okay that's it it's a tiny part of an enormous service within an enormous firm that's owned by an enormous firm right the vqa the video quality analysis is the bit that works out if you're having streaming problems if you're buffering if you're going all blocky whatever and then they can kick off some processing to handle that that's all this is it's not the whole thing it's a very small part of a massive application that they've moved. So that's point number one. People were going, oh, Prime Video's moved. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. One bit has. One. Yeah, and there's a headline in the article from, if you look at the, the original post from Amazon or Prime, saying that they switched from a distributed microservices to a monolith application. But that's very misleading because it's, it's not because they're still using it's still like it's still a microservice inside their overall architecture. 
So it's not like they've switched all of Prime Video to be, you know, like a Spring Boot app. It's just not not actually what's happened. Uh, but the internet uh, thought that was the case, you know. Um, for me, uh, Adrian Cockroft published an article sort of saying, you know, here's all, here's, let's make an end all these bad takes and here's the actual truth and how this is just evidence of a serverless first approach, which I, I think I think resonated really well with myself as well because you can see it in action here. They they got something off the ground quickly using the, the serverless um, products. Um, and like we just talked about with cost optimization, they measured it. They saw a way to improve it and switched it to then use containers and, and EC2 instead. And I think that's just a natural evolution. And um, whenever you you know take this serverless first approach, that there's parts of it that just won't work, and you have to then um, you know go down that serverless first chain to um, some of the container services and and just the servers themselves. It's absolutely worth saying as well that yes, they've done that. That's exactly what they've done, and the data they've based this on is. A, it couldn't support the load because yes, serverless can burst really high, but when your prime video really high is 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 orders of magnitude different to what most people are doing. I mean, I, I like and I use the Netflix deploying twenty four thousand times a day example quite a lot. You're not them, you're not prime video, you're not. If you were, you'd be having these problems, but you're not. So stop going on about it. And then following on from that, one of the key advantages of serverless is idle time. You don't pay for no for idle time. You do with servers. Prime Video has no idle type. None. Zero. So, okay, it fits. If they're going to be doing something all of the time, run a server. I mean, that's I'm serverless first, generally. And I've still maintained that viewpoint. It's best for spiky applications within reason and idle time. This is really high load and no idle time. I mean, you do think, why didn't they see this from the offset and sort of go, right, we didn't, I guess, like, you know, maybe they didn't want to move quickly and stuff, or maybe they um, just you sort of went for, like, a serverless-only approach first rather than serverless first. But um, I think from the outside looking in, it seems like it was an obvious time to not use serverless if it was going to be so critical. But I think it's a shame that the internet decided otherwise and that it was a death serverless. <laughs> I think you can never, I think... The worst mistake you can make is get attached to a piece of technology because it does move so fast as well. And then, you know, if it was death to serverless, I'd be very sad, <laughs> you know, and even not be emotionally attached to some products that a, a giant corporation has, has made for me. <laughs> the way I view this generally, I mean, you're not wrong, but the way I view this generally is it feels like cloud repatriation. I can think of three times when that's happened. Total. Three. The amount of noise that gets every time someone talks about it is just unreal. This has happened in the public sphere once. Yeah, once. And it's got so many news minutes and so much media coverage. It's just insane. And the point, well, the point that I keep coming back to is how were how Disney... So Disney Plus is a big you know, poster child for serverless and AWS. How are they... You know, They're saying one thing and then Prime Video saying another. And it just it just seems like so conflicting. Like, how did this article get out from Amazon themselves with what which felt like a misleading uh, headline in it about it, you know being switching from microservices to a monolith? Yeah, it's absolutely been sensationalised by the press. There's no uh, there's no question there. So, um, but thank you guys for debunking that myth for me um, because uh, <laughs> I was beginning to wonder: Are we going in the right direction with all this serverless stuff or not? But you've put me back 
on the straight and narrow. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm now convinced that we're still doing the right thing. But that has brought us neatly to the end um, of our time for season two, episode 17 of Logicast. So uh, thank you very much for your input, Matthew. It's been really great to have you on and uh, some really insightful input from you there. Uh, more insightful than the, the usual drivel that we get from John every week, uh, who is now part <laughs> of the furniture. Uh, so, uh, oh, I'm uh, going to regret saying that, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. It may come up once or twice, you know me. Uh, but uh, that, that, that brings us to the end of the episode so thank you very much for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of logicast we'll see you next time